0: There was a study from a consulting group um, called EAB. They found that um, 70% of the institutions they had studied had at least one open position in the overall development office or their, their university relations office. And so the conclusion is that really this there's been no better time to get into fundraising. I think we are starting to think outside of that box of, You need to have 10 years of experience doing this and really being open to people. And I will say, even in some positions, people that don't have an undergraduate degree, in other positions, maybe a graduate degree is not a requisite. And it goes up the chain to don't rule out people that that have more than the degree you're looking for. I think jobs are really trying to be sensitive to make sure that we get a wide net of, of people.
1: Welcome to this new episode of Papa PhD. I am David Mendes, and today I have the great pleasure of having with me Kenna Barrett. Kenna is a fundraising coach based in Silver Spring, Maryland. Over a 20 year period, thanks to the partnership of many donors, friends, and colleagues, she's raised millions of dollars in all types of organizations from startups to world class universities. Currently, Kenna serves as the chief development officer. Of University Libraries of the University of Maryland. But here's the thing: like many of us, Kenna fell into her fundraising career quite unexpectedly. She was initially bound for academia, like a lot of us, and along the road to becoming a professor, she realized that engaging donors to support a worthwhile mission was a perfect fit for her writing skills, natural curiosity, and change-making spirits. As a coach, Kenna loves to work with introverts, writers, working parents, career changers, and anyone else who wants to perfect their pitch, whether to solicit a gift, land a job in philanthropy, or simply level up their professional persona. I'm really happy we connected and that you accepted my invitation to talk about your journey and your career today. Welcome to Papa PhD, Kenna.
0: Thank you. I'm so happy to be there, be here and hello to the audience here. Um, please... Put in your comments or questions at any time. I really love this to be um, be interactive.
1: Kenna, I introduced you fairly quickly. Uh, and as you know, Papa PhD, the mission of the podcast is to talk with graduate students, graduate researchers, I, I'd rather say, and also young graduates, young researchers, and, and people considering other possibilities than academia. And so... I'd like you to give, you know, talk a little bit more about that moment in your life where you, you know, you thought you were going into that track of, of academia and becoming a professor, but there was this, uh, this switch. There was this, this, this click. Can you talk a little bit more in detail about how that uh, transpired?
0: sure and I've actually been in advanced programs in academia twice so I've had two moments like that um, at different points in my career so the first was just out of college and I was in a, a doctoral program in the humanities and philosophy at UC San Diego and it, it was going great um you know I really enjoyed it I was like really excited to be a, a faculty member, etc. And then, you know, there was sort of this this point during my dissertation, um, or my prospectus um, period that, you know, it just, it, it started to feel like there were other things, you know, that I wanted to do. I was taking an ethics class, for example. And, you know, I got really interested in political philosophy, and you, know, um, the theories behind it and how we could make the world a better place. But nothing that we were doing was actually making the world a better place we were thinking about it and we were debating it and we were reading people that thought and debated about making the world a better place and meanwhile i was living in san diego which is a lovely place it was probably a mile from the beach but you know the people uh there were people uh there was an undocumented family that lived near me that i had become friendly with and kind of learning a little bit about some of the the challenges that they were facing just um kind of being aware of my role in the world and thinking, well, how do I make a difference? And so it was that combined with, you know, many other factors of just thinking, did I really want to sort of sort of write this long dissertation and then kind of be only what looked like an academic philosophy, only doing that one kind of thing, that teaching and and writing. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I'm sure it's changed now. And there's more of an awareness, but at that time it was really, again, you know, Western uh, analytic philosophy was, um, we read largely the same, it was a monocultural thing. We read the same type of of thinkers, even though there are incredible um, philosophers and contributors from around the world. Really, we were reading the same uh, type of, you know, Anglophone philosophy. And here were those type of people, uh, you know, thinking about how the entire world can be a better place. And there were not a lot of voices at that time from, Anyone that wasn't from the U.S. or Canada or or, or England really um, in, in in my field again plenty of work being done but that wasn't who we're reading it felt it felt very monocultural and so um, you know I really I took a second look and then I started volunteering I was uh, volunteering in Mexico for a while and I started. Um, really enjoying it and realizing that I was kind of an interlocutor, that I was a, a middle person between people that needed financial support or institutions that did and institutions that could support them. And so I really got into this as a grant writer. Um, and we, I, I'll stop there, but I can tell you a little bit more if your audience is interested in terms of how I was able to land my first job as a fundraiser after transitioning out of academia. But that was sort of a transitional moment.
1: They'll definitely be interested in that. It's, it's super interesting. And I've heard this so much, this uh, idea, this feeling of a disconnect between the, the you know, lofty ideal of what you do in a lab or you know in, a, in an academic project. And then and you, go, you go out uh, back home and there's this family, this undocumented family, there's a community around you and you don't feel that what you're doing actually has an impact uh, uh, close to home. Um and temporally and physically and so uh, i totally totally understand uh the, the, that that feeling uh and and that experience um and and so uh you had you started volunteering this uh is something that i find is uh very important uh but uh i imagine that it, it you know um it takes some uh, being organized because time. If you are in graduate school, uh, actually, I, I'm not sure exactly at what point you were when you started doing that volunteering, but um, you probably had to have a, you know a very well organized agenda to be able to start you know giving time to this uh, to this other uh, interest that was developing. Can you comment on that?
0: Sure. I was one of the luckier ones in that I had some sort of a fellowship or something uh and i was on i was able to take a leave and if i recall i was able to still kind of finish off and and have um some support through it at least in the transitional period so my advisor in that sense was pretty good about okay so at least you know transition out of this and then you're right like you you have to sort of jump into something because once your fund ends you know you need you need some kind of a job and so it really was just trial by fire um, I wouldn't say I was super organized. So, you know, I was a grad student and this was, you know, a, a little bit ago. So we thought our job was to just think about stuff and, you know, ponder and come up with these lofty ideas. And and uh, I can't offer you much in the way of time management. But what I did do was um, I did a volunteer and the volunteer work turned into a job. It was very Minimum wage job. And then I got another <laughs> low wage job of, in another sort of um, helping capacity and social services and put it all together to kind of figure out, was this anything that I was enjoying and, and wanted to do? So it was it was a long it was a long, slow transition, but I'm glad I did it. And again, you know, happy to answer any any audience questions about it, because, you know, we all many of us go through that with academia we're not
1: nobody's alone i find this um this path from uh doing you know being in in research to serving so i feel there's one of the vectors let's say in the in this path of yours was you you wanted well we already said you wanted to feel that what you did had the more Direct effect uh, and and uh, shorter term <laughs> effect v- versus the years that it takes for for uh, research to to give visible or tangible results, but also you probably um, had this uh, will to serve uh, in a way. Uh, I, in this case, I, I imagine a community, um, but at least an organization whose values was aligned with yours, and. This makes me reflect as one of the things that I tend to, to ask people or you know ask people back who ask me what should I do now that I have my PhD and that I am a bit lost is to kind of do a tally of your values, your interests, uh, and and I imagine that once you had the, your foot in that, if you then went if then became a job and then another one, you kind of lucked out in finding something that was well aligned with your values. What was the place of introspection, uh, or or um, connection with with your, let's say, inner world in in that decision of okay, I've done this up to this ta- up to this point, and now I'm going to switch because this is where I feel I I can give more value back to the community.
0: Yeah, it was it was kind of cool. I started volunteering for an organization called the American Friends Service Committee which uh, at that time was, I think it still is a Quaker affiliated group that just they just, said, you know, they were really focused on just supporting and we were working along the U.S.-Mexico border. They were documenting anything that had gone wrong with people that had been unfairly deported or mistreated. And so, you know, they were just kind of a presence. They were bearing witness to what was going on. And so that was the first group I volunteered with. But I'll I'll tell you like how I then figured exactly my role, and that it was going to be more of a grant writer than a, a social service provider. I read, "What color is your parachute?"
1: Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, <you> know, <laughs> actually,
0: I recommended it. it was really, and it helped me understand. I like to be in a teaching, a helping kind of a role, and so I went through all of that, and it it sort of. Undergirded my determination to to continue on this path uh, and not go you know, back into academia at the moment. So then, the, the next thing I I did that was kind of old school, and I've written about this on LinkedIn and elsewhere, was I actually uh, from What Colors Your Parachute? I I realized I needed to make phone calls because they said you need to network. You actually have to network. You're not just going to get a job over the transom. And we can talk about this more because. I do identify as an introverted person. I didn't necessarily want to do that, but I, yeah, exactly. Unite, we need us, they're important. But then I didn't necessarily want to do that, but I took the advice and it was like, it's low key. Just ask for an informational interview was what they said. You're not going, Hey, can you give me a job? And, And so I did that and I got a list of mentors from my alma mater, my undergrad alma mater in the region. And I just kind of called them and left messages. And I heard back from a wonderful person named Nancy Sherman, who's uh, who's passed away, unfortunately. But she uh, was a real wunderkind. You know, she ran a social service organization in San Diego. And she was just you know, such a character, just an iconic uh, person. We, we called her the Shermanator. So I think she was just a very determined, amazing person. And she brought me in. She thought I had something to offer. Uh, but her philosophy was 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 really old school. It's really fun. It was like you have to start at the bottom, no matter who you are, no matter what your qualifications are. So she had me answering phones, and it was it was actually really interesting, and I learned a lot. And then from there, I was able to to do a little bit more. And I wrote my first grant proposal, and it was fifteen thousand dollars, and we got it somehow, and it helped an organization that was affiliated to hire a part time leader so it was a really meaningful thing to be to feel like wow i, I helped do something that's great so that was sort of that that inflection point and that's how i kind of figured out what i wanted to do
1: i love this and and I, I like that uh that approach of start you know start at the bottom because you know first clearly she knew you had potential to, to then evolve but what that made sure of is that when you evolved, you know, all, you know, whatever you were going to be doing, you knew. you knew all the other steps up to the person who's taking phone calls because you had done it. And, and that, that I think speaks to connection with an organization and, and, um, and, uh, um there's a term that, that I'm not finding now, but you know, yeah, real connection and real knowing what everything I- entails that that organization does. It's, it's really, really interesting, but, one thing that I'm curious about is how, and if you remember it, how was the reaction from her or from the people at that at those first jobs that you you know talked with, what was their reaction when you said, oh, actually, I have this degree uh, and I, I studied all these years, but now this is what I want to do? Did they question some of that? Did they ask you, are you sure? Uh, or did you know? Was was there this type of co- of question of, are you sure you're not going to be you know bored here? Or I, I wonder whether this type of uh, conversation, which I've heard from some people, is something that you have experienced.
0: Well, it definitely, yeah, yeah, it definitely comes. It didn't come up specifically for me in in that where I was in that particular part of my group, but it's it's come up before. I think you know nowadays fundraising, there are a number of people with. PhDs. So it's certainly not thought, oh, this person is just looking for something else. But yeah, I think, um, you know, I thought I knew, I thought I knew mm-hmm. a lot. So, uh, you know, there were times when I went in and said, oh, it should be done this way. And I got people saying, no, this is why we're doing it this way. Kind of. So, you know, sometimes you have to eat a little humble pie and go like, yes, I know I've been in this esoteric field, uh, but I have to learn how to communicate and fit in with the people around me. And that was, Part of what we get to today is that was an incredibly valuable skill to just realize i i needed to to figure out how to fit into the social milieu of that organization and not just go well i was at a doctoral you know program in philosophy so i i know a lot about that you really have to have to figure out how to fit in
1: mm-hmm. and now uh you know like i said i uh, clearly you you had these conversations knowing within yourself that this was something you wanted to do um you, from what i i'm getting you didn't have to do much of convincing people of that uh, to do because uh, they you know you had some experience already from your volunteering um but i i wonder if you can talk about for people who are considering you know maybe okay i'm in the last few years of my phd and i want to maybe start doing some volunteering can you talk about uh First, um, the kind of uh, parallels of skills from one to the other. So, wh- what kind of cross-pollinated between the two worlds in terms of your experience doing research, and then your experience on the you know on the ground on the on the field doing things, changing changing lives, and eventually uh, you know asking and getting money for projects you believed in. What are the skills that kind of match between both th- those universes?
0: I want to make sure I get through the question about your credentials first. Um, I did leave my first program with a master's and then I went back a couple decades later. It was like much later, 10 years, 13 years, something like that later to, to do a PhD program. And so at that point, once I did do that program and we can talk a little bit about that, but uh, I did get, you know, is this what you want? You have a, a doctorate. And I even remember my first job out, of After getting my PhD, and we're doing the salary negotiations, and I'm like, "Well, I have a PhD," they <laughs> said, "Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, but we're really looking at your track record, and we've already factored that in." And so, you know, I didn't get asked, but then again, I started my career when I had a master's, and so it's a little bit probably brings on fewer fewer questions. But I think that then you asked about the skill set. Um, you know, one thing I was, I, I think that I wonder if your audience feels this way too. Sometimes I wasn't a cookie cutter doctoral student, even in the beginning, you know, every time I'd write something, it'd be like, kind of more creative and have an interesting intro instead of all the just lingo that that filled a, a philosophy paper, let's say it was not supposed to be drawing the reader in with a personal story or something it was very few philosophers that that did that but i would kind of write in this way so so even that was more helpful when i transitioned into grant writing a lot of persuasive writing now in the professional context is supposed to be storytelling oriented it's narrative that's how you get audiences interested in what you're trying to do so i think that was always in the background that was one skill that i could then play up and i could Write a grant that I thought told an interesting story and not be told that I need to use more technical terms. And even when I went back for my second, in my second PhD program, even then one of my professors, and this was meant as a compliment at that time said that my writing was really understandable. <laughs> and that a lot of people in, uh, this was in, in English and in writing studies. And now you're dealing with some continental authors, some postmodern authors that you kind of really don't think they were trying to make it too clear what they were saying. <laughs> they kind of, you know, they wanted to make it complicated and interesting. And I would just try to lay it out. So those skills, you know, I developed as I went along, but I think I always had it latent that, you know, I just wanted to be someone in the world that people would, you know, I wanted to make it understandable. And that's, that's a piece of it. If you're going to be doing writing after your dissertation, after your doctorate, you're going to want to go, okay, who's my audience? How can I make them understand this? they are going to be reading 10 of these job applications or cover letters or 50 grant proposals or whatever it may be. I need to make clear what I'm asking for and I need to make sure that it's interesting enough so that they don't go, why did this person just say in 20 pages what they could have said in two pages? So brevity is really important. And if you understand why, it's not because they're trying to dumb stuff down. It's just because people have limited time spans and attention. So those kind of skills, I think I was able to develop as I move forward, did that answer
1: your question? Yes, it it, it does answer my question. So, people who are, are uh, watching or listening might be thinking, "Oh, well, uh, this is grant." You know, we're talking about grant writing. We're talking about uh, fundraising. Uh, um, you just mentioned a second PhD in you know in the, in writing in English. Uh, if I have a you know if I have a PhD in let's say like me in cell biology this uh this interview is probably not for me and i i wonder whether whether you agree or not although i i you know i imagine the answer you might have uh but um is there a profile a specific profile academic profile that is more al- uh aligned or that that you know lends itself more to working in fundraising or if you come you know it's independently of the domain that you've done your graduate studies in you can come into this space and add value.
0: Oh, I, I think you absolutely can. Absolutely. And I know people from the physical and natural sciences that have come into fundraising in one way or another. And maybe we can back up and talk about the field a little bit. Because what is what is yes. fundraising? Yes. <laughs> people, no one knows. It's, it's the worst name. It just sounds like all you do is ask for money or you're all about sales. It's it's really, it's a, it's a it's a difficult name. It's not a very uh, marketable name, but 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 fundraising uh, is working with constituents of an organization to find opportunities for them to support the organization in a way that's meaningful to them and meaningful to them and helpful to the organization. So that's that's what it is. Sometimes people say we facilitate philanthropy because that's more of what we do than asking, and you know, you're really making opportunities happen, and that's type of fundraising. So mostly what's meant is doing what's called major gift or individual giving fundraising, where you're working with alumni of your institution or supporters of your organization and coming up with opportunities they might want to support. But there's so many other aspects to this. As we mentioned, grant writing as one of them, it's a whole separate kind of subfield. And then and then again, you know, toward the issue, the, the question of people in STEM fields, are, there, are IT roles in Fundraising, there's a, a ton of data analytics that the field is getting into. So there's there's all kinds of, of roles. And there's annual fund, which is direct response fundraising. So when you get that letter in the mail or that email from your alma mater, that direct response. And that takes a lot of marketing research. So so there's all kinds of roles right now. And I will say there was a study from a consulting group um, called EAB they found that um, 70% of the institutions they had studied had at least one open position in the overall development office or their, their university relations office or whatever it was called. Can you get so get that like one or more open positions at that time, 70%? And so the conclusion is that really this there's been no better time to get into fundraising. I think we are starting to think outside of that box of, you need to have 10 years of experience doing this and really being open to people. And I will say, even in some positions, people that don't have an undergraduate degree, in other positions, maybe a graduate degree is not a requisite. And it goes up the chain to don't rule out people that, that have more than the degree you're looking for. I think jobs are really trying to be sensitive to make sure that we get a wide net of, of people.
1: hmm and and so and so thinking of of you know graduate researchers, young researchers uh, who might be considering um, you know listening to this and thinking oh I might go uh, actually talk with the people in the department in my university and see what's out there. What's the type of because um, you already kind of mentioned that there are different job uh, you know job descriptions that that all. Uh, have a role to play in this in this venture of of bringing money into projects or bringing money into institutes and and things like you know, making these opportunities happen like you said of having people that can support an institution with the with the institution and with projects but specifically for this population of of people who have you know taken their studies to a certain uh to a certain uh, amount and until the masters until the phd w- what what can the day to day look like for someone in you know starting uh maybe still finishing their graduate school or right after graduate school starting in this space what can the day to day look like for them
0: Sure and you're thinking about the day to day if they were fundraisers or yeah. Yes yeah yeah so the the day to day for for fundraising is um It's really different than being being in academia, at least for me, from my vantage from the humanities uh, in that it's it's more structured. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But, you know, for instance, you have um, you have a team that you're working with. So you may have some team meetings that are on. You may have departmental meetings and then you have like longer term goals. Um, Quite typically, fundraising, the, the way we measure it is is more and more of. A consideration. So we have fiscal years, and every fiscal year, oftentimes you'll be in an organization that has a goal they want to raise, and so there's a a goal-driven sort of teleological aspect to the fundraising in most fundraising shops. And sometimes it can just be, "Hey, we'd like to raise this much," <laughs> and other times it you might be um, you might work out with your supervisor what that goal might look like. Um, you hope that the supervisor doesn't come and give you the number that you're supposed to raise. That happens more than it should. Uh, but, you know, you, it should be a collaborative process. And so then you're kind of working toward an established goal, which, uh, you know, for me in academia, the goal was so far was five years, six years, you'll get a PhD. And there weren't really that, that much in terms of in intermediary steps and benchmarks that I had to meet. It'd be like, okay, give me, you know, some pages of your prospectus. And then it was sort of on me. And if I didn't make the deadline, (laughs) I just got more stressed out, you know? So this is like, it's just, you're kind of in this little program. And so your day can be as structured as, as you make it, you know, some people are very organized about it. Others, you know, just kind of get through their inbox and move from there. So there's different approaches to the work. But it really is, it's, it's much more focused and structured. And so that's something to think about, like, is that something that you would like to do? Or you feel like that you would not thrive in that kind of environment. But I I like it, uh, especially again, like somebody that's more on the introverted side of the spectrum, it's nice to have the structure. So, you know, here's I with this person, here's when I talk with them, and then Oh, I'm supposed to, you know, try to meet with X number of donors every year. And that's kind of great. So I have that expectation and I have a list of people I should reach out to. So that structure kind of works for me. But that's that's what the kind of without going into detail, the day to day is like that. And, you know, it's 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 interesting, again, especially after you've been uh, doing something on your own to be part of a team. And if it's a, if yeah. it's a functional organization and a good team, it can be really rewarding.
1: Now another question that I have is people often uh young young researchers and and people are like at the end of their academic their their graduate school journey sometimes they have this reflection of oh if I leave uh the bench or or the lab or, or research I won't be uh first uh, I'll, I'll be uh kind of betraying uh you know my colleagues my whatever supervisor etc also uh I will not be intellectually uh, stimulated as I have been doing research uh, and um it feels like you have all of these things in what you do plus you are you stay academic uh, adjacent let's say <laughs> you're very much actually you may even be closer to uh, to to a, a certain structure of the university yeah. than you were uh, uh, in the lab, well, in the lab is not probably the term that's <laughs> used in humanities, but you know what I mean, during graduate school. It, it, so for people who are afraid of, oh, uh, leaving research is, uh, I don't know, is closing a chapter uh, and uh, leaving, um, you know, uh, leaving a, a world. It feels like you ha- you didn't leave it at all and you're contributing to it in another way. Am I am I saying this right?
0: Absolutely. I mean, it is. It is like if you move from one place to another, you you are leaving something and you're probably the new place that you go to isn't going to be exactly like it. And you know, I moved from San Diego and I still that I missed the beach, <laughs> but it's, there's so many reasons why I'm, I'm really happy where I am. And so that's the metaphor. I think, yes, you will be, you will be leaving something, uh, but, but it might be better. I mean, it even, you know, in terms of research now, I'm not necessarily referring to to the hard science research, but in early in my career, I did get to do some surveys that we presented at a conference uh, with some colleagues. And so it was really rewarding. And I, I think, you know, there is definitely um, an openness to, to, if you have quant skills and, you know, could be part of a group that's studying something, I can't necessarily say that would definitely be, Okay, but it's certainly something that you mentioned in your job interview. If you're talking with somebody and say, you know, I understand that, you know, this, this job is about X, Y, and Z, but I do have these other skills. Is there any, you know, place for that? Or maybe you are, you know, you are interviewing for a position that's more in a research, uh, like development research field or some of the data analytics, and you would get to work with data. So it's, it's really something to kind of explore the specific nature of it with the job that you're going for. But it's definitely not exactly the same, of course. I can't just go and write all these, you know, sort of papers. <laughs> I mean, I could in my spare time. But, you know, you, you're working for an institution. And so you are, in some sense, going to embody those values. And so, for instance, for me, I am at a library system, and that just really, I, I really, care a lot about supporting uh, academic libraries. And so it, it's aligned with my values. So yes, there's a little bit of a transition, but I think for many people, they're glad they made the, the ch- choice. And then also for some of us in the humanities, unfortunately, with the the decline of humanities funding over so many decades, you kind of have to make that decision because there's there's finances and things that come in. You can't, adjunct, you know, in five different jobs mm. for the rest of your life.
1: Of course not. Of course not. Yeah. And now, you know, today, the zeitgeist is that you don't have a career like you did in the past. You're going to be working and in a couple of years, you're going to change work, jobs, and et cetera, et cetera. And in terms of career building, in terms of career development, from your story, it feels like you were very much self-motivated to into going into this a career, although in the beginning it wasn't exactly what you, what you are doing now, um, but there is two things in what you said. There is space, so there is seventy-seven percent, I think, uh, of of universities is what you, the it's number seven, I think seven, you mentioned. In that
0: particular, yeah. or 70, 70,
1: yeah, I agree. yeah uh, have spots, have uh, positions for people uh, in in that space. Um, so, what can you know for a young graduate? what can building a career uh, in that space look like? And the things people often ask themselves, uh, the questions people often ask themselves is, how much can I make in a year? Uh, And then, you know, and how much can I make when I'm a senior uh, in in the space? Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that and like open the veil a little bit on on that part of things?
0: And, And I think it's important too. And so... It it really so salary really depends on where you are. If you're at a big institution in New York City versus you're at a, a small nonprofit uh in another market, it really depends. But I will say, you know, I had after maybe four or five no, maybe six or seven years into my fundraising career, I had uh gotten together, I was visited had a visit with an old colleague back in my old department. And I think we compared salaries and like I was making more than this person who was a tenure track professor. So again, yeah. those things are skewed. If you are a faculty member at a Yale or a Harvard, or one of the big name institutions, and you are tenured, you will be out earning all but the, the most high level fundraisers. But, you know, with anywhere else, there really is a point where, you know, I I'm, I'm, would be earning much more in this job than as a, an academic, again, knowing I was not destined uh, for, for Harvard or Oxford at that point. So, you know, you can easily work your way into a six figure position, you know, after I don't know how many years, but it certainly isn't you know, going to be that many years um, that it would take you kind of progress in your role. So, you know, I think, um, and again, when I went back to do my my PhD, finished, maybe that was about eight years ago. So I did my PhD in writing, uh, English and writing studies. And I mean, I was going on the job market. And again, to pull back that veil, I think the offers were like $50,000 for a tenure track role. And I was making more than double, about two and a half times. My offer when I got back into fundraising. I mean, just think two and a half times more what I would have made now. Again, I had already had experience, but still, it's the same person. I'm the same person, and you know, what's the market saying? There's there's just a lot more. Um, there's a lot more opportunities, and that's not saying that that's good or bad. It just is the fact that it's a job that's growing that pays pretty well. You'll be able to make a living. You won't have to worry about oh, I can't make a living in this profession. Um, and, and so it's, I think it's growing at 11% uh, per year, according to the U.S. Department of Labor. Oh, wow. so those are U.S. statistics. But, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of jobs out there that you could choose from that are growing. And, of course, many are in STEM statistics and so forth. But, and there's also food service. You know, there's lots of jobs that are growing because they're looking at the list. But, uh, you know, if you are somebody that you decide you don't want to do STEM, well, what are those um, AI-proof jobs that you can do that some robot or app is not going to take your job? And one of them is involve human interaction. And we need experience. And working with donors is very experience-driven. You know, bringing someone back to that institution and showing me, having to meet with their scholarship student is something that's really meaningful for people, and it's, it's not going to be done by chat, GBT. It's something that
1: no, <laughs>
0: <laughs> you didn't do in person, and so so for, for many of the audience out there, if you're like, no, I want to go to step. Which, of course, step involves you know personal social skills too. But you know, just building that that EQ, I guess that the emotional intelligence skills that you're going to need for the marketplace will really serve you well. And I guess GPT proof your career.
1: <laughs> That's super interesting, and it's uh, it's interesting that you use that term uh, AI proof. Careers, uh, it's, I haven't heard it before, and but it's so, so, so pertinent today because uh, I think the, the menace is there.
0: There's, a, I think, a, a book, we'll have to get the reference maybe for your audience, but I think it's called Robot Proof Jobs or something like that. So that was the idea. I have, I have the reference, I haven't read the book, but that's kind of where this is coming from. It's like, what are those, you know, careers are functions that really, they, you know, they're not really going to be totally taken over by uh, learning algorithms and You know, they learning algorithms can't, you know, sit with you and they can't be people. And sometimes, you know, there are some jobs where that involves a person.
1: (laughs) It does involve a person and and it has to be a person. So now, um, Kenna, one, one thing, uh, that I, I mentioned in passing was, uh, that you coach people and, uh, and i imagine people wanting to access uh you know to get uh, their first their step in the door in their first job fundraising could you know can um can work with you to and you can help them prepare for that based on that uh my next question and 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 maybe and probably you know last question because we're getting to to the 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 45 minute uh, mark here is What are uh, institutions looking for when they, you know, they put a job posting out there, fundraiser, but you, I don't know if you have done interviews, but people who are interviewing in your experience, in the interviews that you've been on the other side of being uh, interviewed for a position, what is, uh, you know, what are key skills, key characteristics that make, uh, make you a good candidate uh, coming from graduate school to uh, start working, start you know collaborating or working with an organization in fundraising.
0: Yeah, that's a great question, and I think the first thing is knowing that you have a master's or PhD. That really shows that you are intellectually capable. So that that's sort of um, that's a great thing that you don't have to go and wonder if this person could figure this out or understand that. So that you really have going for you if you're coming from academia. You've got that ability. And then if you're applying for a job in an academic institution, you also have this wonderful sense of credibility that, that you understand academia. And that's helped me work with academics is, is being at least having the, the sense, the optics that I get how to, how to work with people that are researchers, how to talk to them, what their concerns are. And that, you know, I understand how how universities work. So, so that's great that you have that. And then what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to add those, what we said, the EQ skills onto it, which is going to be something that maybe you haven't been, you hadn't needed to do that in academia. As long as you were like roughly polite, you got along and you, you know, you went to your lab or you did your papers on time that's sort of what we're measured on in academia. But so when I talk about layering on those personal skills, it might be just something as simple as, um, you know, figuring out how to make a little bit of small talk with your interviewer as you're walking down the hall to their office, or as you're on zoom, you know, waiting, or maybe it's just, if you're on zoom waiting for your interview interviewers to get on and there's one or two of them, maybe it's just smiling a little bit and, and looking prepared instead of, you know, like, like that. So just being conscious of how you, you, are presenting yourself is step one, so I think that's the first thing that you want to layer on, and then you maybe mm-hmm. send up send a nice follow up note that picks up on obviously some of the things you discussed. Um, and that piece about being prepared to understand that you know you're going to be working toward a goal, and that's true of all industries, so not just fundraising, but understanding that you'll be in a sort of a system and a process, and you're going to be part of it. So preparing for those interview questions. A lot of uh, shops I've been in use behavioral interviewing, and they may be pretty general. What's a mistake you made? What um, name a time that you worked in a team and solved a problem? And so just just kind of being being prepared uh, that those questions are going to be asked. So just that's probably true of all fields that you transition on.
1: Yeah, being personable is part of it. And now the, the other side, let's say the other side of the coin of this question is what, what are pe- what are mistakes that people do or, or and i'm I'm asking this not you know you're not ready for this question, so you, if you have an answer please please share it, but if you don't we can we can move on but what are mistakes people do commonly when uh trying to uh um uh, you know like when when yeah trying to to get into the space and having these first conversations? But are you know they they've they've not prepared well enough. What are what are things that they do wrong, and that kind of preclude them from that from a nice first uh, first step into the space?
0: Sure. So probably not not reading the room enough. So if I'm 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 someone that's fairly soft spoken. So if I have someone that's kind of talking over me, and this hasn't been academics, actually it's been other <laughs> interviewers, <laughs> that kind of jumping in and just interrupt. You know those kind of things you don't want to do. One one big thing is though as you said David when you're interviewing for a fundraising position you're you're trying out that job for them you're showing that you have the the ability to to have that to make a connection with the interviewer. It's a different connection than you would make with a donor. But one thing is send a follow up thank you. <laughs> Please do that. Because mm-hmm. if you're not doing that I'm going to wonder if you're doing that with the donors or not. So in, in a different way than if you were maybe applying for an engineering job or something like that. This is a trial run for you so that I can see how you might be with some of our, our donors and supporters. So understand that. Just think to yourself, what is this interview really about? So if it's a tech interview, I'm sure you, you could say more than me, but maybe there's going to be tech questions you have to solve. But for this, and then it would be like, oh, and we like them too. You know, they, they seem to be decent human beings for this you know, i'm really checking out like does this person present themselves could they be in front of a donor and that's unstated but that's the reality of when you're doing a frontline development interview
1: now these are just a few points that you mentioned and like i said you offer coaching and uh for people who are now watching there's a little marquee going and under, um, underneath here pitchperfectfundraising.com is the website where uh they can find what you do can you talk a little bit about what you offer as a coach and uh, also share where is where people can find you most easily and ask you questions if they do after watching or listening to this conversation
0: absolutely so on my website you can sign up for my mailing list if you want to keep in keep up to date with what i'm doing and then there's also a form you can fill out uh, like a contact me form Uh, So you can reach out and we can set up a conversation. But really, um, yes, anyone that thinks you might possibly be interested in fundraising, please feel free to contact me. And also people that uh, you're not sure, but you, you think you need to polish up on your presentation skills because you're going to be going on the job market anyway. That's something else I work uh, on and particularly with people I we talked about this a little bit like introverts and people that maybe career changers, introvert, anything that you're not quite sure what you need to do, um, we can focus on that. Because the, the point about a career like fundraising, even though it is uh, something that relies on social skills, you do not have to be an extrovert. I think there's some research that that maybe there's a, a slightly more extroverts than introverts, but just imagine when there's still a, a huge ton of people that are identified as introverts in this field. And and you can do it and and I think in academia that maybe selects for people that often um, they can work on their own a lot. They're very capable of that. But what, um, what I want to say for the message for everyone is that when you build these skills, you'll find that they're helpful in your life as well. So now I've, I've really learned a lot about how to talk with people, how to listen to people, what kind of questions I ask when I'm on a visit with somebody, um, how to kind of keep my goal in mind, but also be responsive to them how to think about how to connect what they're talking about and how to understand what they're really saying. Oh, I see you're feeling like you want to trust the organization before making a gift. Is that right? Really understanding them, those kind of skills, guess what? They help you in your life as well. So that's what I really love about this job is it pushes me in a different direction. And that's what I'm happy to talk about as well as like, what are you, you know, what are you considering doing? And I can figure out if I can be of help or, you, you know, just, you know, we could... See where, where else you might want to get help and support because everyone needs guidance when you're making a huge transition like leaving out of academia. Academics we're we think we should do it all ourselves, you know. It's <laughs> yeah. not really true there's a huge group, group of people that are willing to help and there's many industries that are willing to welcome you in. So mm-hmm, that, that's my message.
1: It's a it's a great message and uh, one one of the things that uh, that uh, I'm I'm taking home uh, from this conversation and, and from from like the journey that you you kind of shared uh, with us today is uh, to have uh, to anyway that people independently of where they are in their journey listen to their inner voice if if it's calling them to do something different than being in the lab and doing the research okay try and finish your degree if you're at you know at least near near to finish try to finish it it's always great to close a chapter and to and to have that you know that reward of finishing something, but there there is more stuff out there. There there is you can be passionate about, and clearly you are, can uh, about what you do. Uh, you can uh, if you need more of a you know day to day feeling that you're contributing to something, that you're seeing the results you know almost right away, or at least at more in more short term. There are ways to still staying close to academia to to uh, to help your the, your institute your the researchers of the university you were you were doing your graduate school work at but in another way in that other side which is fundraising and, and getting uh, uh you know there's a part of communication in it you know showing what the university does and then getting people to help the university who people who can or or any anyway, organization who can help the university and research in another way which is through fundraising, and I think it's something we hadn't covered ever at all on the podcast. I, and I'm super happy that uh, that we could spend this uh, almost an hour with you, kind of uh, you know drawing the curtain and seeing uh, and help allowing people to see that this space exists and that they can contribute to it. And that and this was this you actually surprised me, uh, although we had talked about introversion, but with this statistic that you just gave. I would have imagined that mostly it would have been extroverts, but it isn't. And for me, it's good news because it opens the door to all of us (laughs) to to allow ourselves to imagine ourselves doing this. But it's also interesting because there there are different strengths. And you mentioned listening. And in my experience, listening is one of the introvert superpowers, as I say it. Uh, And I'm sure it has helped you uh, uh, a lot in what you do. and uh, yes. before thanking you for for being with here with me here today, I wonder whether you have a, a last word or comment based on these little take home messages that I just mentioned.
0: Well, it's it's absolutely true. I've I've presented on this about the myth of fundraisers being guys who golf or someone who's <laughs> or ladies who lunch, you know, and and it's really not necessarily true. We can get the statistics, but yeah, the finding was, you know, a few more. There's still whatever it is, 40 or more percent of people <laughs> identify on the introverted side of the spectrum that are major gift fundraisers. Now, we're not even talking about people that are doing the back end work. Mm-hmm. So don't, don't shy away from something you think you might be interested in because you think you don't have the right personality. You know, that is something that can grow if you care about the cause and if you want to learn, and what you what you did in, in grad school was you had grit, and that gets you really far uh, in the industry is just that sort of determination to learn and get better. And so those are another set of skills that you bring besides your intellectual experience, the grit and perseverance that you bring will be will do really well in this role. Then you find you may enjoy the social interaction, you know, as you said, David the listening, the kind of making things happen for your institution and for that donor, all that is things that we do really well as introverts. And we can leave the showmanship at the cocktail parties too. <laughs> <You love it. laughs> you know, to the extroverts and we'll go and just have our little, little corner <laughs> conversations. And that's okay. There's more than one way to, to be in philanthropy. now well, that's what I'm here to say. I don't know if there's any questions in the chat or if we have.
1: Well, First, I want to just repeat, uh, so people know, pitchperfectfundraising.com is where you can find Kenna uh, and her work. Also, of course, on LinkedIn, Kenna Barrett, PhD, you'll find her there. If you go on the web- on her website, there's the newsletter that she'd love you to, to get onto if you're interested in what she does and in fundraising. Uh, and it's all on the website there. So I wanted to say that first. And so to finish... And based on this question uh, from Gibran, which which has to do with uh, facing problems and transitions, career transitions can be perceived as problems, depending on where you are in your life, uh, how things are going. Um, you know, there's always an aspect of difficulty in changing, especially when it's changing spaces. You're going from one culture, one lingo, uh, one tribe to another. Uh, can you do you have a last word for someone who's a bit uh, kind of uh, you know has cold feet about taking that leap and yeah giving them something uh from your experience and based on what you uh, lived uh, and, and experienced yourself
0: Sure and it's really to just to just take that leap um that's the perseverance part you know so many of our heroes kind of talk about Courage not being um, the absence of fear, but the way you move through that and to the other side. So even if you are hesitant, don't take that as a sign that you shouldn't do something. That's just part of your nervous system. <laughs> I like this, but, but if it's, you know, there's not a bus coming your way. It's simply whether you should reach out to someone and send an email or apply for a job. You know, don't be held back by the the kinds of fears that we have, maybe you could acknowledge it and say that's happening. I'm having this, this anxiety, but I'm going to do it anyway because you really never know. And there, you can't, it can't hurt you to apply or reach out to someone to learn more about a particular career that you think may be interesting. So just stick with it. That's, that's what I did. And and that's kind of the recipe for success.
1: And uh, tell me if I'm maybe, you know, stereotyping or, you know, or having, um, a, a, like a positive bias, but I imagine that the fundraising space—it's a very uh, welcoming—and I, mean, I know I'm generalizing, but it's a welcoming space. That's basically—it's not the word I wanted. That's that's what I, I get from not having English as my mother tongue. Well, but what I get
0: for not speaking any French. So, <laughs>
1: <laughs> but but it's not a menacing space to get into. That's what I mean. People are 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 mission-driven, often to help causes to help uh you know i'm thinking of associations or ngos that deal with the you know patient uh i have projects you know working with with patients of rare diseases etc it's not a menacing space to to get into so you you talked about in informational uh interviews when you you know when you read when you read uh, what what colors is your parachute um People shouldn't be afraid to reach out to people in the fundraising space. You, well, first for people listening or watching, Kenna is super nice, super accessible, oh. <laughs> and right. and she will she will for sure answer a lot of her questions. But if you have one NGO or or if you want to reach out to the people in your university, I don't think uh, you should be uh, afraid of uh, <laughs> of of yeah. them, right? Uh, I think it should be a very uh, easy space to start putting feelers out in into
0: it's yes typically not cutthroat and yes if you reach out to the folks in your university you you already you know you already have that calling card if you're already at the university so you know i think people would love to talk with you and you learn a lot i i think that's great to reach out to the folks at your university So yeah we're not cutthroat i mean that really you know that that's not how how the best fundraising happens that so that we're sort of not acculturated to be cutthroat and, you know, it's not a hardcore sales office, but you know, every organization is different. So some are more stressed out than others, but you know, so don't take it personally. If you don't hear back from someone, but certainly I think, you know, you will have good results. As I said, I, I did when I started reaching out to, to people way back when. So definitely do that. There's a lot of LinkedIn circles as well. You know, that's become a really good hub of people wanting to connect in fundraising and philanthropy so you know friend people on linkedin reach out find the little groups that there are and go from there
1: awesome i think it's a it's a great last word uh because uh it, it gives people who are listening and watching a first thing to do get on linkedin meet someone and get into a group and and that can be the beginning of uh, of this of this new chapter for you Um, Kenna, this has been great Uh, you've been very generous of your time and of of your story and and of your journey Uh, and uh, I want to really thank you for spending this time here with me, Uh, again go to to Kenna's website if you're interested and reach out to her on LinkedIn if uh, you are watching right now, if you're on YouTube and you haven't subscribed to the Papa PhD channel, please do I'm on this uh, slow path to 500 subscribers which will open up some new possibilities for me in terms of uh, creation and and community um, Gibran is saying thank you thank you Gibran for having stayed throughout uh, throughout our conversation uh, I hope this has been helpful to you and uh, if you have any questions reach out to us uh, and and that would be it I just I want to finish again by thanking Kenna for for this. And uh, again, for saying how, how grateful I am that you had this time for me and for the Papa PhD audience. So thank you.
0: Thank you, David. And thank you, everyone. Remember to subscribe to David's, David's channel. Wait, you're over this way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. But subscribe, subscribe to his channel. He does a great service to the community. So I'm, I was honored to be a guest. So thank you.
1: Beyond the Thesis with Papa PhD is a labor of love. If you like the show and have found value in it, you can pay it forward by donating to help other people like you hear Papa PhD. Even a $5 one-time donation will be really appreciated. So go to PapaPhD.com forward slash support to donate or to PapaPhD.com forward slash Patreon to become a patron. Your support will help me cover the cost of hosting, equipment, and other recurring expenses needed to bring you a high-quality show week after week. Thank you for your support. I am David Mendez. See you next week.